Welcome to TKG's Healthcare Insights, where we explore healthcare's critical issues, challenges, and trends with a focus on achieving the quadruple aim of enhancing patient experience, improving population health, reducing costs, and improving the work life of healthcare providers and staff. Thank you for joining us today. Welcome. We're glad to have you listening today. I'm Warren Smedley with the Kinetics Group. Each summer, the Kinetics Group brings in several student interns to explore the critical issues in healthcare and learn alongside the TKG team. In this episode of TKG's Healthcare Insights, we will be highlighting the findings from three of our summer interns' research projects focused on adopting patient-centered care. I'm delighted to introduce our summer interns, Danielle Dror from Tulane University, Prem Shah from Temple University, and Ava Ritchie from the University of Southern California. All three are students pursuing degrees in healthcare. Welcome, Danielle, Prem, and Ava. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having us. It's great to be here. Terrific. The Kinetics Group is dedicated to advancing the quadruple aim, and to that end, each summer, we ask our summer interns to explore a significant and compelling issue in healthcare. This summer, the team did a deep dive into patient-centered care with an underlying focus on gaining a better understanding of how healthcare organizations and stakeholders are integrating patient focus into their strategies and interventions. The team looked at patient-centered care from four distinct perspectives, health equity and social determinants of health, digital health trends, including telehealth, population health management, and how the use of big data has helped to reshape patient care over the last year. Patient-centered care is a pretty broad term, so why don't we begin by asking the team to define the context of their research and where they chose to focus within the scope of patient-centered care activities. Danielle, maybe you would be the first to kick this off for us. Yeah, of course. So patient-centered care puts the patient first and recognizes that every patient is unique and doctors must work towards meeting patients' needs, values, and desires. Prior to patient-centered care, the healthcare system often put the facility's needs first. PCC recognizes the importance trust and mutual respect plays in a patient-provider relationship. In order for trust and mutual respect to be there, the provider must understand a patient's culture, lifestyle, and background. This means that the providers must look at the social determinants of health. Social determinants of health recognize that only 20% of the healthcare picture is the medical care an individual receives. The other 80% includes the social and economic factors, physical environment, and health behaviors, all of which happen outside of the doctor's office. Understanding these other factors help explain why an individual's health may not improve even after being told a diagnosis or being given a prescription. Overall, understanding the social determinants of health helps providers deliver better patient-centered care. It's a complex problem, isn't it? Yeah, very Staying patient-centered is complex. Now, Ava, your research focus was around using data to help drive patient-centered care. Absolutely, yes. You know, data is really interesting in that regard. Um, I think that we are seeing that, you know, when speaking about patient-centered care specifically, Data is really being used to drive these meaningful patient outcomes through more nuanced treatment decisions. From a clinical perspective, you know, data-driven health decisions definitely prevent morbidity and they prevent mortality. There's like, there's a really great um, example of this from Kaiser in Northern California, in that they're using their data to identify neonatal risk factors. 
So they actually were able to find that fewer than 0.05% of their newborns have blood culture confirmed infections. However, 11% of all of their newborns were receiving antibiotics. So, you know, to address this overuse, they actually began to use predictive analytics from their neonatal data sets to predict these infections based on the mother's clinical history. So I think that's, you know, just a great example of how uh, data is really being used to, uh, you know, drive more nuanced treatments. Data is also used to increase patient engagement and satisfaction. So understanding the patient perspective, um, you know, particular, particularly their medical history is really important to, uh, you know, getting these patient-centered outcomes. So another great example would be Mount Sinai. They're, you know, they attribute their EHR data integration to an increase in timely patient discharges and also to fewer days spent in the hospital. Uh, and then, you know, on another, another side of this would be health equity. So Intermountain Health System in Utah you know, has really spent this past year um, diving into their data from an equity lens. And what they've been able to do is they've disaggregated a bunch of their health outcomes dashboards over the past year. So, you know, this could be anything from telehealth metrics to, you know, just more run-of-the-mill health outcomes data. And here they're disaggregating it by equity variables So they're really able to go into the data sets and pinpoint disparities in their patient care. And then, you know, moving forward, they're really then able to implement better interventions and interventions which are more uh, equity focused. Fantastic. There's a great interest in trying to find patients that may have fallen through the cracks for one reason or another. Healthcare is complex. And it's easy for patients to lose track of where they are, what they're supposed to do. And, uh, this big data seems to be able to help us find people and stay in touch with them. That brings up also this issue of virtual care and Prem, you kind of zeroed in on using digital technology and virtual care to support this patient-centered care effort. What, what was that like for you? Yeah, um, I think that goes very much hand in hand with uh, with data because the, the idea with digital health or telehealth, I think, is all to an extent of making healthcare frictionless for a patient. Uh, and things like remote patient monitoring or even telehealth, kind of having healthcare from the comfort of your home, um, just kind of reduces that that bridge to healthcare. What, is, what does it mean to kind of take care of myself or interact with the healthcare industry? Uh, with regarding um, telehealth and digital health, there's like four main points that we can kind of talk about. Uh, the first being continuing interactions. And so like receiving care doesn't really need to be an event, right? Rather like an easy conversation at the comfort of a patient meeting the patient where they are physically and mentally and emotionally. Um, There was an example, uh, one regarding autism. And so when everything kind of had to go virtual over the pandemic, uh, it was kind of hard to, like, again, kind of that, uh, figuring that whole thing out uh, had took a little bit of a time and there was a learning curve with it. Uh, But something with autism, a lot of doctors saw that when they got to see children in their natural environment, um, they were able to kind of discern a lot more about their treatment paths instead of just being in the doctor's office. Um, and they saw the parents were more involved with their children, had more agency in their treatments. And so that continued interaction was uh, super important with telehealth. And we saw that and probably now is a theme that will be adopted uh, later down the line. A couple other things such as patient engagement or access to care or population health um, are also key points uh, with telehealth and uh, digital health. Terrific. 
in your presentation, I was really fascinated by your insights into the recent trends in patient-centered care. You specifically mentioned equity, privacy, and access with regard to these trends. Would you share your findings in this area? Yeah, I can start it off. So patient-centered care works towards health equity, but it is important to recognize that health equity does not automatically come about. Instead, health systems and institutions must put time and money into properly addressing health disparities. It must be built into the institutional framework. Medical schools are starting to include health equity into their curriculum. This is a major stepping stone in future providers understanding how health disparities impact minority groups and the importance of studying the social determinants of health. But teaching all that in medical school is not enough. That is why, going back to what I just mentioned, health systems must include limiting health disparities as a goal into their institutional framework. Great. Thanks, Danielle. Yeah, so much to your point, I think another part um, on this equity side of patient-centered care is definitely that we need to ensure that data collection is not merely extractive, right? So what we really don't want to happen is for researchers to enter you know, vulnerable communities and extract data sort of as they please. And then, you know, maybe they leave and they upload it to a data sharing platform or, uh, you know, maybe they use that data to inform some other health initiative that may be completely removed from the community itself. So we really want to avoid a situation like that where data is collected and then it's not actually used to help a given community. You know, from a privacy perspective, increases in health data collection also do mean that we need to think about how we're going to continue to protect patient privacy. So there are, you know, some some pretty important elements to consider here. I think the first would be data minimalism. You know, this this same idea of not taking more than what is really needed from a public health standpoint. Uh, the second point here would be ongoing monitoring and assessment. So there's this really, you know, great idea about implementing mandatory mandatory sunset clauses to ensure that data isn't being misused, that it isn't being stored improperly, or, you know, that it isn't being used for future studies, which individuals may not have consented to. Last, you know, there really needs to be consultation and collaboration as well moving forward. So, you know, much to Prame's point, socially responsible technology could be constructed together with the communities that it would be, you know, impacting to sort of have that collaboration and uh, consultation moving forward. So standardizing data sharing is also really huge because if we have the data, that's, you know, that's really only half the battle. The bigger question then becomes, how do we use this data to collaborate to address social determinants or to collaborate to create, you know, better digital health, for instance? And, you know, last, it's really, it really is important to note that, you know, physicians are ready and they are willing to enhance their patient-centered care. Uh, so Stanford Medicine released this really great health trends report from 2020, and they asked this, they asked this question, are you currently seeking out additional training or classes to better prepare yourself for innovations in healthcare? And what they found was that 47% of the physicians and 73% of the medical students had responded yes, that, you know, they were willing to take those extra steps to really go the extra mile um, to implement some patient-centered care. Very interesting. I have a question for you about the privacy aspect of data. 
there's mm-hmm. a pro- proliferation of of apps that patients can use themselves or that every time we turn around, there's a new app, a new digital application for collecting information, collecting patient reported outcomes. Did you come across any reading or study about how that data is being kept private? Everybody now is trying to get this data on patient engagement and patient reported outcomes, but how are we protecting it at that level, the big level, I understand, you know, in the electronic medical records, I can see how that's got more governance over top of it. But how are we, mm-hmm. did you come across anything at the, the, all these startup apps, there's data everywhere. Right. You know, I, I don't think I came across anything too specific, but I would definitely agree that there, there is this growing concern for, you know, how patient privacy will be. Uh, protected moving forward, especially, you know, much to your point, I think we're really starting to see this trend towards health information, which is being provided from, you know, wearable technology, for instance, you know, Apple watches, smartwatches, you know, I think we're approaching the point where that information can be sent directly to your primary care provider. And so, yeah, you're totally right. This question of privacy really does come up and you know, I think it is a real concern and it is definitely something that needs to be addressed um, moving forward. A comment off the off script. Uh, we just had a grandbaby and first grandbaby. So my wife went and ordered from Belk department store, some baby clothes. Mm-hmm. She, or- she ordered that in the morning. And in the afternoon, I was getting ads on my on my emails for baby clothes from Belk. <laughs> of course. It was of that course. fast. Here's a potential customer. They were already using right. data that I had not given them permission to market to me on. So that kind of thing scares me when it comes to how data that's out there. We might we not, may not think of it as healthcare data, but it's data that's out there on patients and their preferences and their activities and what they're doing. And there seems right. to be no way to really protect that. Prem, maybe this is something that you dug into with digital. Yeah, uh, I think that's a the whole privacy thing, and something I would like to research more is the idea of like ethics in uh, one data, and also as these remote patient monitoring systems come out, and like the idea of like all the data that you get from an Apple Watch per se. Um, what are the ethics behind that? And who's regulating how that's being used? Yeah, you can have it, and the question is, okay, how can we access it? But in what forms are ethically? Uh, I think understandable. Um, definitely uh, a topic I unfortunately don't have enough to say about yet, uh, but I think it's super important to open up the floor to that because um, as like, we now have new innovations in healthcare or even AI, which I'm sure we'll touch on later in the podcast, um, the idea of like this, this can kind of get out of hand very quickly if you don't have balance set regarding ethics and morals. Okay, Ava, you had mentioned earlier in this conversation a couple of different case studies, but you also, in your presentation the other day, you highlighted, as a team, you highlighted several case studies. Are there any of those that you want to come back to and uh, could highlight for us now? Absolutely. Um, I think I could jump into one that, you know, Prem was just talking about. So we have this data and that's, you know, that's great, but that's really only half the battle we really need to look to the implementation side of that, right? So how are we going to actually translate this data to action? And I think a really great example of this has been the work from the Public Health Alliance in Southern California. They have used their Healthy Places Index resource map, which, you know, is essentially a standardized data sharing platform 
uh, to sort of identify the most vulnerable communities in Southern California for their COVID support. But then, you know, also in this way, they're linking their local partners to this information and they're really uh, drawing on their local partners' support as well to implement these um, initiatives. So, you know, they started by aggregating all of their social determinants data in one place for all of their stakeholders, all of their partners to access. And then they were really able to successfully break it down to the neighborhood level and then even, you know, get as specific as street level as well. So this type of resource map is, you know, obviously super important anywhere, but especially in a city like Los Angeles, uh, where, you know, you could really be only a couple miles distance between some of the highest income communities in the state and then some of the lowest income communities in the state. Um, there really is that that pretty stark uh, wealth difference in the city. So it is really important to break it down to that really granular level. So then once that map was created and, you know, it was accessible for all partners and stakeholders, they then began to use it to serve these really localized response efforts. So they deployed their, you know, these testing and manage in place teams, they call them, which are mainly EMS and mainly social workers as well, who are able to then go into these areas which are designated as high risk through the resource map and then offer health care and uh, offer support as well. So this, you know, was anything from food to transportation credits to free COVID testing to, you know, mental health support as well. So in this way, the communities which really did need the most help in Southern California and more specifically in Los Angeles we're getting that help. And that definitely would not have been, you know, possible without this, this great HPI resource map, which was able to break it down to that, you know, really granular level. Do you see that as an opportunity for other parts of our country to share data that way? Because sharing of data has not been open and easily accessible. It's hard to find data, but it sounds like in this situation, Los Angeles shared that data specifically to try and help improve these underserved areas. I wonder if that's a model that we could embrace in other parts of the country. Yes, I think absolutely. And I think that we'd be, you know, remiss not to do so and not to aim to, you know, achieve this level of data specificity where you're able to take that larger data set and then, you know, really dig in deep to it and use it to inform more localized and personalized, you know, response initiatives, because, you know, that's definitely where I see public health moving is more of a a patient-centered focus, you know, as we've been talking about for a while. But yeah, I think that we'd, we'd be silly almost not to sort of try to emulate this in other response efforts. Very good. Prem, did you do some work on remote patient monitoring? Yeah. Yeah, that's um, definitely, I'd say, one of the biggest key points regarding digital health, uh, remote patient monitoring, and then that applied to chronic uh, solutions. Um, and so a lot of chronic conditions actually make, uh, so chronic conditions make up 6% of our country's GDP. And so uh, that is definitely a 6%? huge percent. Yeah, 6%, wow. um, which is okay. crazy, crazy to say. Uh, so that is definitely a huge pain point, um, something that, again, uh, remote patient monitoring can uh, kind of attack. And so uh, we can take the case of diabetes, per se. Uh, so diabetes, a disease 26 million Americans have, um, and the seventh leading cause of death when uh, not uh, controlled. 
I mean, the idea is that on, about only 50% of patients with chronic conditions are actually able to stick to these treatments. Um, and so actually in cases such as like hypertension, we see even less than 50% adherence rate, which causes like over $100 billion annually to our health system. And so there is definitely a huge uh, like need here and remote patient monitoring can be the solution to that. Uh, so there was a meta-analysis done of uh, multiple self-monitoring uh, blood glucose interventions um, with the seven key elements of patient education, provider education, uh, structure, self-monitoring profile, self-monitoring goals, feedback, uh, data used to modify these treatments, um, and then interactive communication or shared decision-making. So if you were to take just five of these seven key elements and integrate them into one self-monitoring uh, glucose intervention, uh, you would see a decrease of at least 0.7% uh, in HbA1c levels. And so we see that with these self-monitoring interventions, you actually do see uh, a decrease in these levels or you do see uh, the proper, uh, proper management of the condition. And that's merely just because uh, you're allowing for more of a communicative atmosphere between a, a patient or a provider or allowing for a lot more education. Um, usually the, the case is that like people do want to kind of take care of the health. I don't, I don't, I've never really come across people that don't want to take care of themselves in that regard because these chronic solutions can end up coming to be worse. Uh, but the idea is that it, it requires constant attention and literacy and knowing what this disease means, knowing how to control it. Um, and especially like in this day and age when we have so many things going on, health seems to be the first thing that we forego, especially when they're chronic conditions because we kind of just get used to it and you kind of just learn how to live. Uh, but the idea is with remote patient monitoring and digital health, we want to decrease the friction to stay on top of your health. And that in turn would decrease the cost of our health system. And so we can hopefully take that $100 billion annually just from hypertension and bring it down to something more manageable. Or maybe we'll see not 6% of chronic solutions as our GDP. Maybe it can be 1% or 2% later down the line once we start learning how to control these conditions. And so at the end of the day, chronic conditions are here to stay. Um, but what really matters is how digital health and this remote patient monitoring allows us to successfully manage them. Okay, this is where we are going to press the pause button on our summer interns debriefing of their summer project and split this discussion into two episodes. We will pick back up from this point in our discussion in part two. Special thanks to our summer interns, Danielle, Prem, and Ava for sharing their time and expertise with us today. Well, this wraps up another week of TKG's Healthcare Insights. Thank you for joining us. We welcome your suggestions, ideas, and requests for podcast topics of interest. Please email us at oncology at thekineticsgroup.com and write Insights Podcast in the subject line. Thank you. Have a safe and healthy day. You have been listening to TKG's Healthcare Insights, a program produced by the TKG Oncology team of the Kinetics Group. TKG Oncology empowers life science companies to effectively engage with health system and payer customers by developing strategies and real-world solutions aimed at impacting the right patient at the right time with the right care. We also work directly with health systems and payers to address the critical issues of our time. We would love to hear from you. Reach out to us at tkgoncology.com. Thank you for joining us today.